Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey everyone, Josh here. Before we get into the episode today, I just want to say really quickly that feeling a lot of gratitude for how this podcast has grown and how it's reaching people and touching people and bringing together a really thriving community of people who are feeling the call to the mythic, the call to the animate. And as you've probably gathered, if you've been listening for a long time, the scope of the podcast is kind of growing. The episodes are involving more and more musicians. The episodes are becoming more and more what you could call, I guess, sonic journeys. And that's an aspect that really is gratifying for me. It's weaving together a lot of things that have been really important to me throughout my life. Music production, sound, oral storytelling, really the vision as I'm sure you know, is to create a sonic journey of invocation, a medium through which we can go on a journey together. And to do this takes time, and it takes energy, and it takes involving multiple people, and it takes studio time, and there are increasing costs associated with it. So I just wanted to say at the beginning here that if you're loving the work and wanting to support the work, please consider becoming a patron and supporting the effort that goes into creating these episodes. I'm really seeing it as an artistic endeavor, a mythic endeavor, a journey of the spirit, you could call it. And I really need support in order to bring that to full realization. And your help, just like a little bit of help, a few bucks a month, makes that dream possible, increasingly possible. So yeah, if you're interested in becoming a patron, check out patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast, and there are patronage levels that start as low as $6 a month. And it's a great way to stay involved with the community and to get more content and to be able to participate in mythic study groups that happen twice a month. So if you've been thinking about it, and I know I do this with podcasts quite a bit, I just kind of, I hear the person talking about joining Patreon and I'm like, yeah, I should really do that. And then, you know, the day happens and <laughs> I, I get pulled by the moon in a hundred different directions. Then I forget. And then I hear it the next time and I think it again. And usually it takes me like three or four times before I'm like, yeah, this is a podcast I really want to support. So um, just a nudge, reminder, inspiration, provocation, invocation here um, that this podcast really runs because of user support. And if you feel compelled, that support is very welcome. Now let's go to the moon. Let's go to the moon. Let's build a ladder to the moon. 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 Do you remember the moonrise that night? Of all the moonrises, there's probably one that stands out. One of particular fullness, of particular glow, of particular mystery. One that brought with it a sudden transmission. You know, that transmission when the moon breaks through the trees on the ridgeline, and you suddenly see, beyond doubt, with a certain holy clarity of vision, 
where we are. This place we inhabit, a place of great turning spheres traversing space. I remember that one moonrise, oh, I remember the full moon rose over Chaco Canyon all those years ago, like an egg yolk made of mother of pearl dripping upwards, like milky nectar the tantras say, pouring from the round mouth of eternity. The moon rose, and all the sandstone canyons glowed with moonlight. Glowed, glowed the canyons of stone beneath the moon. There's a particular glow of sandstone under moonlight. Do you know it? Do you remember that one moonrise? Which one was it? Which moon on which day, in which age, seen through which eyes? For how many eyes over how many eons have reflected back the moonlight? So the moon lives in the eyes of all the creatures of the world. The moon lives in wolf eyes, elk eyes, antelope eyes. Moonlight scatters like a fleeting necklace in the eyes of a flock of blue macaws chattering high above the rainforest canopy. Were we to count, were we to measure, we'd find that the moon has lived in a trillion eyes. In a trillion, trillion dewdrops, a trillion, trillion ice crystals. Ooh, I remember a winter night, the dry champagne snow frozen into feathery ice crystals. The moon sent the whole place sparkling with purple and green lunar rainbows. The snowy meadow was transformed into a field of tourmaline and emerald and diamond. Do you remember? The moonlight on the snow. Winter moonlight, wrote poet Yukiko Itoyama. My bones, too, are transparent transparent before the moon. All is transparent before the moon. Imagine, moonlight has touched every pine needle that has ever grown on every pine tree that has ever been. The moon has tugged at every drop of water that has ever existed. The moon rises a circle without blemish, said Chinese poet Tu Fu. And, he said, this same clear glory extends for 10,000 miles. The same clear glory, 10,000 miles, when the moon rises, light covers half the world. Have you felt that? When the moon rises, light covers half the world. So the moon that you saw that time, every coral reef on the planet knows that moon. Every snowy owl and seagull knows that moon. Every swallow and every swan, every vine and every tree knows that moon. That same moon, that same moon, this same moon. This swollen egg, this yolk of pale light, this... What shall we say here? How many ways has the moon been described, felt, articulated? It almost seems to be a challenge, a perennial game for poets, right? To try and find new ways to describe the moon. To reveal a new facet, a new aspect of moonlight, a new face of the lunar god. Udbata calls the moon a jar that pours with lunar spray. The moon is a ghostly galleon tossed upon cloudy seas, said Alfred Noyes. A harsh mistress, said Robert Heinlein. A chariot carried by seven geese, the bull of heaven with brilliant horns. Or a cow-headed god whose milk nourishes the world. An egg, a pearl, a drop of nectar, a god, a goddess, a fingernail, wrote Gerard Manley Hopkins. And certainly the moon has been, in the poet's minds, many parts of the body. The moon has amber hands, Emily Dickinson tells us. 
It is a milky breast, said the ancient Egyptians, or an eye, a smile. You've seen it, right? That smile in the sky. 4,000 years ago, someone sang to the moon rising over the desert hills above the river Nile. He rises with trembling arms over the desert, they sang. Moon of water, they sang. Moon of water. Your essence is lifted burning in the sky. Moon of water, your essence is lifted burning in the sky. If you listen carefully, you can almost hear the 4,000-year-old trickling of the waters. Almost hear the wind in the reeds. 1,300 years later, the Greek poet Sappho invoked the silver face of the moon. Quote, her silver face swims into sight and fills all space. Sappho describes a night 28 centuries ago when a circle of Cretan maidens danced beneath the rising moon as if they were dancing round an altar, trampling the grass with their bare feet. What were they singing all those years ago, their hair falling in braided tresses? What did they call her? What songs and cries rose from their warm mouths on the shores of the wine-dark sea beneath the rising of the moon? Convinced, Mary Rufel writes in her masterful essay on the moon, that the first lyric poem was written at night, and that the moon was witness to the event, and that the event was witness to the moon. For me, she says, the moon has always been the very embodiment of lyric poetry. In the West, lyric poetry begins with a woman on an island in the 7th or 6th century BC, when the moon is nearing full, or just the other side of it, or on the dot. So, yes, all those years ago, Sappho told us that the moon is a silver face. It is silver, after all, right? The moon is silver. But according to the Norse Eddas, it is gold. And the Sanskrit hymns call the moon the one with white ornaments. Hail, white-armed goddess, sang Homer. Bright Selene, bright-tressed queen. Elvis Presley crooned about a blue moon. Blue moon. And according to Nick Drake, the moon is pink. And the Neville brothers sang to a yellow moon. Do you know something? Do you know something? 
some have even thought the moon made of cheese or a pizza. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. So, which is it? Is it blue? Is it silver? Is it yellow? Is it pink? Is it a face, or an egg, or an eye, or a seed, or a drop, or a cup, or a smile, or an ancient god driving a chariot driven by pure white antelope? Of course, it is all these things. The moon changes. It transforms. It disappears and reappears. It swells to fullness. And in that constant cycle of changing, it reveals new facets, new faces, inspiring a hundred thousand verses. A hundred thousand hymns of praise, all of which sing of the moon just slightly differently. And all those varying facets that the moon reveals over time has caused the moon to be linked to many, many things, for many traditions across the world. So in the West, the moon is often associated with poetry and romance and mystery. How many poems to the moon, how many longing lovers sealed their union beneath the moon? How many moonlight sonatas and how many clair de lunes? How many clair de lunes? And along with this is the sense that the moon changes mood. It alters consciousness. The moon takes us into hypnotic states. You've felt, perhaps, the intoxication of moonlight. You know, how did that last full moon make you feel? The nectars of the moon are intoxicating, many traditions tell us. So the moon has been seen as a bestower of trance, an inducer of ecstasy, even wild. But wild is an interesting one because the moon, in its repetitive cycles and defined rhythms, also is order itself. The moon returns again and again, it pulses again and again. And so the very pulses of life, the sacred and mundane calendars, are aligned to the moon. The moon cracks open our modern fractured notions of order and mystery as two separate things. The moon isn't an amorphous blob of random mystery. The moon is mystery as regular repetition. The way a drumbeat is mystery, a ritual dance step is mystery. The moon reveals the simplicity of the great design of bodies in nature, that the doorway to mystery is through repetitive enactment, that there is a profound relationship between deep altered states and regularly repeating pattern. In ancient Egypt, the moon governed both empirical science and magic. If we can grasp such a thing now, there, at the overflowing confluence of science and magic, sits the moon, pulsing with the rhythm of life. Let's sing of the moon. Let's sing to the moon. Let's sing with the moon. With the moon. With the moon. Because far more than simply being a metaphor for love, for poetry, for ritual, for consciousness, for ecstasy, for the rhythm of life, the reflective rays and the gravitational pulls of the moon are actually present in all these things. The pulse of the moon is present in life, in bodies, in consciousness. Bodies don't just respond to the moon. Bodies, all living bodies, are architected around the moon. Consciousness isn't just affected by the moon. 
Consciousness itself, as we'll explore in this episode, was constructed, was grown, evolved, you could say, if that's the word you like, around the moon. I'll even go as far as to say this. Consciousness is lunar. But I'm jumping ahead. For now, let's just say there is a deep link between the moon and consciousness. So close they are, consciousness and the moon. As close as Selene, the moon goddess, and her lover Endymion. So close they are that it is almost as if the skull of each one of us is its own sky. A dome of limitless, empty sky. A deep, spacious, purplish, black expanse. And in that wine-dark sky, a silver-white reflective sphere ever traverses. Pulling on our waters, reflecting back to us pulsing in cycles, repeating in fluid rhythms its ritual song, inviting us into the space where we can bask in its nectars and saturations. It's almost as if the moon lives in our very own bodies, almost as if it is present in the movement of our fluids, almost as if it is present in the ebb and flow of feelings, almost as if these bodies themselves were built so that the moon could live there. The moon, the moon. Is this coincidence? Is it just merely the principle that every part of the whole reflects the whole? Or is it something much more direct? Is it that our somatic organisms, our hormonal, neurological, and fluid life rhythms, our cultural constructs, our rituals, our way of knowing and learning, our very reflective, pulsing, ecstatic, dripping consciousness itself was directly built around the moon? Scientists are now telling us that life itself originated with the tides, the lunar cycles of the tides, and that life itself would probably not exist without the moon, and that life self-organizes around lunar rhythms. So we come to find that the old Zen masters and tantric sages who equated consciousness and the moon were not just being poetically pretty. For the moon built this body, and somatic practice is the construction of a tower through which to better glimpse the moon. Somatic practice is the slow architecting of an ancient alchemical observatory in whose upper decks one can bathe in the pulsing glory of moonlight. Ritual is the construction of a ladder to reach the moon, to feel the moon steep in the moon and through harnessing her meters and rhythms, poetically, ritually, through harnessing her pulses and tides, all else can be stripped away, all else can burn away, all else can be stripped away, so that at last, at last, we can cry aloud as haiku poet Mazuda Masuhide cried, the barn burned down, now I can see the moon. Let us build a ladder to the moon. The body is a ladder to the moon. And your consciousness comes from the moon. This time on The Emerald.
my toddler has a lot to say about the moon. He tugs at my sleeve and insists I come with him to see it rise. He knows at almost three that there is a full moon and a new moon, a tiny moon and a big moon, as he calls it. He knows that it's there and then not there, and it doesn't return at exactly the same time each night. Even at three, his consciousness is tuned to the moon. He hardly ever talks about the sun. Why? It's too bright, too overpowering. He can't look at it. There's little at first to build a direct relationship upon with the sun. It's the assumed, steady, eternal light above. But the moon can be gazed upon, studied, felt, sung to, spoken of, and in witnessing its varied faces, the urge to describe it arrives. The poetry flows. This is an urge that human beings have felt forever. The moon inspires description. The moon stimulates the creative voice. The moon is sleeping, he tells me, one overcast night. Does it have blankets, I ask? The clouds, he replies. It's not hard to feel what Mary Ruffel is talking about. The inextricable link between lyric poetry and the moon. Why this link between lyric poetry and the moon? Is it just because the moon is some kind of far-off inspiration that poets yearn to describe? No, lyric poetry and the moon share a much deeper bond than this. For the nature of the moon is what? It repeats itself constantly, even as it changes. The moon is repetition. The moon is a repetitive utterance of the heavens above, the one that repeats its form the ancient Egyptians called the moon god Thoth. Yes, the moon is a repetitive verse. Stanzas of lyric poetry mirror the exact journey of the moon, the same cycle, the same spiral, a regular rhythm of repetition that always returns, but returns slightly different each time. It is constant, it repeats, and it changes, it transforms. So rhyming is a lunar endeavor. Iambic verse, dactylic verse, hip-hop flows, all are lunar. The light of the moon repeating in cycles that are different and yet the same. The moon is metered poetics itself. Poetic meter is not abstractly lunar. It is the pulse of the moon in lyric expression. Which of course is why the verbal root for moon, men, is the same root for Meter. What is meter? Meter is measurement, regular incrementation. The word measure comes from the same root as the word meter and the word moon, and the moon measures. Measures what? Everything. Weeks are measured by the moon, months obviously are measured by the moon. A woman's menstrual cycle, and there's that root men again, is measured by the moon. Calendars were almost all originally lunar. The calendar is a gift of the moon. The one who gives the calendar is one of the names of Thoth, the moon god. And the months of the calendar are, of course, moons. Months, moons. So for the Tewa peoples in my part of the world, February is the moon of the cedar dust wind. And March, the moon when leaves break forth. June is the moon when the leaves are dark green. September, the moon when corn is taken in. Measurement. The attunement to the rhythms of life, the attunement to how things repeat. The organization of human life around patterns. And in fact, the very first recorded human measurement is lunar. 
a 30,000-year-old bone fragment from Abri Blanchard, France, inscribed with marks depicting the waxing and waning of the lunar cycle. So the Vedic hymns call to the moon as the cause of time, and the impetus to measure things at all most certainly came from the moon. The first most obvious regularly repeating refrain in our ancestors' lives, the light that bestowed the gift of regular increments came from the moon. What a gift. To have something that is both constant and that pulses between disappearance and reappearance. Thank goodness, the Book of Symbols says, for the loveliness, the fearsomeness, the portentousness of its measured concealments and revealments, the apportioned variability of its shadow and light, how reassuring the cadence of lunar time, its allowances for increase and necessary diminishment, how potent what James Joyce called the nocturnal predominance of the moon, and of the particular mode of consciousness we think of as lunar. End quote. So the moon gives us the gift of measurement. The regular repetition of lunar rhythms allows us to measure and therefore to remember. The moon is memory. Meter, measure, memory, moon. As Cal Garrison says in the book The Lunar Gospel, quote, the moon has total rulership over memory. She is responsible for the mechanism in us that knows how to remember because she is the master of repetition. Now, it's interesting to think about this because time, experience, and repetition are the only teachers here in the third dimension. The moon goes around in circles over and over again. She is the most blatantly cyclical body in the solar system. End quote. Blatantly cyclical. I like that. We learn, remember, embody through spiraling in repetitive cycles. And so the memory that the moon brings comes through the repetitive cycles of ritual. Ritual comes from the moon. We all know ritual is built around lunar dates, of course. Full moon ritual, new moon ritual. All of the major Hindu rituals happen according to the moon. Easter is lunar. Ramadan is lunar. But this is important here. Ritual doesn't just honor the moon or coincide with lunar dates because they are special in some abstract way. Ritual enacts the repetitive pulse of the moon itself. Ritual is something we learned from the moon. We felt the moon's cycles of wax and wane, of emptiness and fullness, of life and death, and we felt these cycles in ourselves. And we understood that the way to align to the great natural pulse, the tide of nature, is through enacting these cycles. The moon taught us this. And so the moon is in the ritual. Ritual repetition is a ladder to the moon because ritual repetition is lunar. Repetitive ritual is a heartbeat. It is a recurring set of waves, and as we pound our feet and harness our breath and invoke repetitively and in rhyme, invoke sounds and syllables that may themselves, as we'll explore, be gifts of the moon, the moon is present through all of it. Anything that we do over and over, the moon is there. By extension, Garrison continues, the moon rules our habits. Think about it. What do you do every day? What do we do every day? Anything that we do repetitively is ruled by the moon. When you're cooking breakfast, that's the moon. When you're putting your slippers on, that's the moon. When you're brushing your teeth, brushing your hair, washing your face, that's the moon. Anything that's related to the house and especially the kitchen, that's the moon. Food is lunar. Water is lunar. The laundry is lunar. 
When you're hanging up the wash or putting it in the dryer, you are involved with the moon. All of this is lunar. The moon is the mycelium. She is the moss. She is the matrix that all of the bigger stuff takes place in. She holds it in a net or a web or a womb. Moon, moon, moon. So the moon is the great measure. The measure of the calendar, the measure of ritual, the measure of memory, the measure of repetitive invocation. And for some, the word measurement, of course, can sound somewhat mathematical and dry. But measurement is something else, too. It is rhythm. It is pulse. There's no contradiction between measure and mystery. The musicians that know how to launch us into the mystery know the embodied secrets of the mathematical measures of rhythm and harmony. So measure is the fluid rhythms of life. The passing of time, the cycles of birth, growth, decay, and resurrection. This is the great mysterious measure of life in a world of passing time. And at the center of this great mystery of meter and memory and measure sits the moon. As Mircea Eliadi notes, from lunar cycles come the first coherent theories concerning death and resurrection, fertility and regeneration, initiation and so on. The phases of the moon, appearance, increase, wane, disappearance, followed by reappearance after three nights of darkness, have played an immense part in the elaboration of cyclical concepts. This perpetual return to its beginnings and this ever-recurring cycle make the moon the heavenly body above all others concerned with the rhythms of life. If the moon in fact serves to measure time, if the moon phases reveal a unit of time, a week, a month, the moon at the same time reveals the eternal return. the eternal return, our ancestors saw and felt and embodied a natural world and a cosmos that moves in cycles of growth, decay, and resurrection. And the first and foremost way they felt this was through the recurring dance of the moon. The moon itself is born and dies and resurrects each month. With it, certain plants come to ripeness, certain others crack open and fall to earth. This cycle of repetitive vegetative growth and renewal is metered verse in action. What have you mused on, moon? Thomas Hardy asks us. In your day, so aloof, so far away. Oh, I have mused on, often mused on, growth, decay, nations alive, dead, mad, a swoon. Life, death, growth, decay, tides of political upheaval, the central lunar mythologies are mythologies of plant cycles, of death and return, of regeneration, of all things coming to fruition in due time and in due measure, of that which wanes and is restored, and that which, after celebrating in fullness, is swallowed up again by the void. For the ancient Egyptians, the moon was a falcon's eye, injured and restored each month. King Chandra in the Vedic text, King Moon, is married to the 27 daughters of Daksha, the animate stars that inhabit the nakshatras, the lunar mansions through which the moon passes in its waxing and waning phases. He dallies in each mansion in amorous union with his wives until his vital lunar nectar is spent, 
And then, says David Gordon White, quote, his vigor depleted, he must perform a soma sacrifice to regain his rasa, his sap. And so the cycle begins again. And I think it's worth kind of a parenthetical pause here to break open some limited modern dualities about the moon. Yes, the moon in some cultures is a goddess, and in other cultures the moon is a god, and in other cultures the moon is both. One of the reasons I love Indian tradition is that you are always going to find a multiplicity of visions and an ability to hold that multiplicity. So the moon is King Chandra. The moon is also Soma, simultaneously a god, a plant medicine, and the nectar of consciousness at once. The moon is also the mother goddess herself. The moon is the play between the goddess Tripura Sundari, the great goddess of time and space, the bright lunar fortnight, and Kali, the one who swallows time and space, the dark lunar fortnight. So in this vision, the moon is the pulse of the goddess, a pulse that exists within the cosmos and within each body within the cosmos. This cycle exists within each of us. The lunar cycle exists in everyone. Of course, there is a special connection between the moon and the shedding of blood each month, between the moon and the swelling belly, the fertile womb, the growth of life over cycles of nine to ten moons, and the moon pervades all of us and moves through all of us, and we are all attuned to it in varying ways. The association of the moon with only qualities that modern Western culture perceives as feminine and the sun with qualities that modern Western culture perceives as masculine, the moon with mood and intuition, and the sun with order and reason, for example, doesn't do justice to either the sun or the moon, or to men or to women. The moon is much, much more than this, and we are each much, much more than this, too. For the pulse of the moon is a pulse that exists cosmically, and a pulse that exists within all living things. It lives in societal cycles, in individual liquid hormonal cycles. It lives with the circulation of each breath. In the tantric vision, Mark Diskowski tells us, quote, the moon alternates progressively between light and darkness. It both bestows and withdraws its light. In the body, the rhythms of life are most clearly apparent in the movement of the vital breath, and it is in this movement that the goddess's lunar nature is most clearly perceived. In this context, the goddess, Kundalini, the energy of consciousness, has two aspects. One is the energy of plenitude, the full moon. The other is the energy of emptiness, the new moon. The new and full moon are the two extremities of the movement of vitality. The fullness empties out, Exhausted, it reverts to its original potential condition, which is the source of all energies. The light turns to darkness, and the darkness turns to light. As Kundalini reveals her dark aspect and Kali reveals her radiance, this cosmic cycle is repeated in the movement of the breath. When it takes place mindfully in this manner, breathing becomes the epitome of time. Its ceaseless recurrence, which is life itself, mirrors within it the creation and destruction of the world replicating thus internally the fire sacrifice, the performance of which is coordinated with the phases of the moon, through which the world is created, and which marks its end. So, in this vision, 
The moon is the cosmic cycle of universal waxing and waning, the ritual cycle, the vegetative cycle, the poetic cycle, the cycle of human culture, and the cycles within the body all at once. Because the moon is in the body. The moon is in the body. Let us build a ladder to the moon. Let us call that ladder the body. Have you heard? The body is a ladder to the moon. And this is where the ancient vision of the moon as Soma can be helpful in unlocking some relationships. What is Soma? Soma is lunar nectar. The moon itself is, quote, a vessel containing the milky Soma of immortality. And that milky nectar is the vivifying nectar of life itself that lives in plants, that lives in bodies, that lives as milky semen that lives in pregnant bellies, that lives in all the natural cycles of gestation and growth. Early on, David Gordon White tells us, Soma, the god, became identified with the moon, which was considered to be a drop of nectar, of Soma, shining in the heavens. But the moon, this drop of nectar, was nothing other than the divine seed, which was identified with vital fluids, both animal and vegetable, as well as with vivifying rains and waters. It was this fluid element that Vedic theoreticians conceived as the support of all life. The moon, White continues, fills out with each lunar month to become brimful of nectar, which it pours into the world in the form of vivifying rain, the fluid source of every creature's vitality. In this system, the human life itself is seen as dependent upon the maintenance of lunar nectar. Human life depends on the maintenance of lunar nectar. Quote, the moon in the cranial vault must be continually replenished so that it shines with the vigor of each of the goddesses of the lunar fortnight. And our work, our practice, is to keep this lunar nectar in our bodies invigorated. Through our attunement to ritual lunar cycles, through our incantations of repetitive lunar meters, through breath, which is a ritual lunar cycle itself. So, Soma is simultaneously the moon and the lunar nectar that vivifies all life and soma is something else too soma is the state of consciousness in which we experience lunar nectar soma is trance ecstasy the moon lives in the body in the form of trance ecstasy which like the moon shines reflects pulses alters our normal perception of objects with its light that is not quite sunlight, drips, flows, the moon is trance ecstasy. The ladder to the moon is a ladder made of trance. One time, the Vedas say, the gods wanted to claim the lunar nectar from the highest heavens, but they couldn't do it on their own, so who did they enlist? They enlisted the poetic meters the goddesses of meter. The poetic meters were able to claim the nectar, the nectar which is the nectar of trance, of illuminated consciousness, because the moon is meter itself, remember? So a swap is done, a trade, one of the goddesses of meter is given to the celestial musicians who guard the lunar nectar. So this is a simple story with some deep insights. Let's just say there's a reason that in a story about the intoxicating lunar nectar of trance, the main characters are voice, poetic meter, and celestial musicians. For the ladder to the moon, the dripping moon of trance consciousness within the body, 
is made of music and meter and voice. These are the somatic tools to claim the soma. This is that relationship again of meter and ecstasy. So if you have ever sung beneath the moon, if you have ever repeated something beneath the moon, if you have ever drummed or danced beneath the moon, the moon governed all of it. The ritual structure was the moon, the metered drumming was the moon, the vocal repetition was the moon, and the state of consciousness entered into that was the moon, too. Let us build a ladder to the moon, a ladder woven of generations of lives, of bodies upon bodies upon bodies, the cycle of incarnation itself. For just as the moon lives within each one of us, the moon governs the course of life, the tides of life, the tides of history. The moon rules the life cycle. It rules the cycle of reincarnation. And by extension, it rules what we call fate. The Norns, the fates in Norse mythology, weave a thread that connects each person to the moon. Can you feel that thread? The moon is a weaver, a spinner, in some visions a spider, and the web she weaves is fate. But this again has to be seen outside of the lens of poetic abstraction. For how does what we could call fate unfold? The fate of nations, the fate of lifetimes. It unfolds through progressive, repetitive shifts in mood. Quote, the moon rules the general public. The moon is the magnetic force that infuses all of life on this planet with the energy that ebbs and flows. She moves the tides as well as the blood that courses through our veins. And it is these invisible motions that alter our moods from day to day and change everything about us from generation to generation. The system is a lunar mechanism. Politics is lunar. We could go on and on. It is an oceanic subject after all. We are never done talking about the moon. So the fate of peoples and nations in this vision is bound up with the moon, the spiral of national moods, the fates of cycles of incarnation. The moon in the tantric vision, through the governance of the lunar nectar, administers the movement of beings through cycles of birth, death, and reincarnation. Quote, Those who, when they die, must suffer rebirth, go into the smoke of the funeral pyre, and thence into the night, the dark lunar fortnight, and to the moon along the path of their ancestors, where, after they have been eaten by the gods, they are rained down to earth again where they become part of the food cycle and the cycle of rebirth. So the liquids, the vapors of life, fuse with the moon and then the individual imprint is returned through these vapors. Quote, Returning to its prior state as an amorphous lunar vapor, the individual life fuses with the clouds, falls to earth with the rains, enters into the sap of plants, and thus into the blood and seed of the animals and humans who eat those plants. And then, as the brahmanas say, each phase of fetal development is governed by the moon. The fleshy layers that the moon adds on to its own body with each waxing night correspond directly to the endodermic and epidermic layers of the fetus. The body forms in lunar layers, 
There are lunar layers, lunar progressions to bodies, to the spiritual development of souls, to the growth of plants. Quote, the moon presides over conception, pregnancy, and birth, over agricultural cycles of sowing and reaping, over every kind of coming into being. She is mistress of moisture, of the juices of life, including sap, spit, semen, menstrual blood, the nectars and poisons of plants and animals. She governs the humid vapors that promote decay and the misty radiance that nurses the seeds under the soil. So let us build a ladder to the moon, a ladder made of sap and vegetation, a ladder made of tendrils and climbing vines, a ladder made of ivy and laurel, a ladder made of jeweled Hopi corn, a ladder made of lemon and wild rosemary and wild thyme. For as many cultures have known, plant cycles are directly connected to the moon. King Soma, it is said, when he is not seen at night, is visiting the world, and he enters into the waters and the plants. So Martha White at the Old Farmer's Almanac writes, The new and first quarter phases, known as the light phase of the moon, are considered good for planting above-ground crops, putting down sod, grafting trees, and transplanting. From full moon through the last quarter, or the dark phase of the moon, this is the best time for killing weeds, thinning, pruning, mowing, cutting timber, and planting below-ground crops. Moon, moon, ruler of the movements of our lives, is there anything over which you are not? Empress, Lord, is there anything that you do not govern through your rhythmic metered tides? Quote, she controls the way the blood flows. She keeps the heart beating. She controls all the tiny changes that cause the womb to open when it's time to give birth. She's the one that knows that it's time for the tide to turn. Her patterns envelop all of us. We're living through her 100% of the time. Anything that grows is ruled by the moon. You watch the grass grow. You watch those time-lapse films of things growing at night. The moon's doing all that. All those little twists and turns that those little vines make, the moon is talking through the plant. Anything that grows in the dark, especially things that are round and wet and full of seeds, like pumpkins, squashes, cucumbers, tomatoes, all those things are ruled by the moon." End quote. Melons and lemons ripen to the pulse of moonlight. The lunar force swells the pomegranate pokes the six-pointed crown upwards through its skin, adds the juicy layers of garnet flesh around each seed. When you pause next to a pomegranate tree and listen, you've done this, right? When you pause by a pomegranate tree and listen to the sound of the pomegranates filling with juice, you are listening to the moon. Because the moon rules fluid movement. Experience is wet, they say, and philosophical speculation is dry. The moon rules experience. The moon rules fluid movement. So the ladder to the moon is made of liquid tides. The ladder to the moon is made of liquid tides. And I think this is a good point to get into the science of all this. Because it's easy to say, sure, there's an abstract metaphorical connection between the moon and the cycles of nature and the cycles of plant growth and the cycles of fluids, right? 
And that's the source of these lunar mythic visions. But of course, scientifically, the moon actually does rule fluid cycles. The moon rules tides. Imagine this. Right now, the moon is pulling half the water of the world. Right now, the moon is pulling half the water of the world. Right now, on the side of the earth that is closest to the moon, the waters of the world are bulging towards the moon. If you took a simultaneously big enough and close enough view of the globe during high lunar tide, you'd see a liquid bulge as the moon tugs at the terrestrial water. It tugs and then lets go, draws in and then lets go in a constant tidal rhythm. And the science of it is that this tidal rhythm is everything. This tidal rhythm is everything. The lunar tidal rhythm is right at the heart of what life is. Sometimes scientists say these really simple things that are easy to overlook, but that have enormous implications. You know, these kind of pithy sentences are buried in scientific studies, and of course it's not scientists' job to extrapolate on the implications. So we have to dig them out and unpack them a little and let them reverberate into their true mandala of implication. Here's one such statement from a Scientific American article on the lunar influence on life on Earth. Quote, the lineages that ultimately gave rise to humans were at first intertidal. The lineages that gave rise to humans were intertidal. And here's another one, quote, Odds of nucleic acids forming on Earth without the lunar tides would be much lower. Yeah, so that's a little sentence, right? Odds of nucleic acids forming on Earth without the lunar tides would be much lower. And what it's saying is that life on Earth exists because of the moon. So here's a scientist telling us that from the scientific perspective, our ancient relations evolved in the tides, the tidal waters. Life evolved in lunar tides. The rhythmic pulse, the meter of the moon, the rhythmic ebb and flow of liquid tide is right at the heart of why and how there is life. And so as scientists are now discovering more and more, the rhythm of the lunar tides is embedded in the structure of life itself. A study on molecular mechanisms of lunar-controlled rhythms was recently published in that, you know, very woo-woo publication, the Journal of Molecular Biology. Scientists Gabrielle Andrietta and Kristen Tesmar-Reibel say this, quote, it is plausible that the first life forms adapted to the different rhythms controlled by the moon. Consistently, many marine species exhibit lunar rhythms, and the number of documented lunar rhythmic terrestrial species is increasing. The present data indicate connections between metabolic endocrine pathways and moon-controlled rhythms, as well as interactions between circadian and circuitidal circulunar rhythms. Detailed scientific studies have shown that the reproductive behavior and sexual maturation of animals as diverse as corals, polychaetes, echinoderms, and fish are synchronized by the lunar cycle. The lunar cycle has been shown to synchronize a plethora of different biological processes, such as reproduction in hundreds of studied species, activity levels, valves gaping activity which is linked to feeding and breathing, photosensitivity, emergence eclosion timing, and the molting cycle, what's called exuviation. 
So marine life, as the Hawaiian people have known for a very, very long time, is synchronized with the pulses of the moon. In Hawaiian mythology, a lunar goddess is responsible for the birth and death, ebb and flow of all reef life. Hina Opuhalakoa, and forgive my pronunciation, the goddess who gives birth to all reef life. And scientists are now realizing the extent of the lunar link to reef life. Quote, Probably the most spectacular and documented event orchestrated by animals according to the lunar cycle is certainly the mass spawning of corals. Like inside a shaken snow globe, the barrier reef explodes with eggs and sperms just after the full moon, during late spring-summer nights, in a phenomena even visible from space. And of course, the connection to the moon goes beyond the coral reef. Quote, With the arrival of the rainy season, millions of terrestrial crabs walk every year for hundreds of meters like a horde of implacable and crawling red soldiers from the inland forest to the northwest shore of Christmas Island to breed. In this case, the spawning occurred in a precise lunar phase. In the Bermuda fireworm, they go on, reproductive swarming occurs precisely during the first nights after full moon in summer and early autumn. And it's not just fish. Quote, the European nightjar, a species of nocturnal bird, increases their foraging activity during moonlit nights and attempt migration flights mostly during the days following the full moon. In cycles of feeding, mating, sleeping, waking, cycles of life, the moon is there, establishing the meter of the pulse of life. Snowy owls use moonlight reflecting off of their white wings to dazzle prey when hunting. Nocturnal predators time their hunt to the lunar phases. Quote, Greater vigilance and lower food intake have been shown in gerbils and wood mice during brighter moon phases. In mammals, phases with moonlight often inhibit specific behaviors, possibly because the dim nocturnal light favors predators in spotting their prey, with consequences on energy allocation. Similarly, the lunar cycle affects badgers' modesty. Matings mostly occur during the darkest moon phases. End quote. The moon, the moon, governess of the tides of life, mitigator of the modesty of badgers. And of course, humans are not free of this lunar influence. The lunar influence is why we have the word lunacy. The perceived effect of the moon on human behavior goes back forever. And while it's difficult to find a scientific study that corroborates the old story that emergency rooms are more crowded during full moons, the data on lunar influence on human behavior are only growing. There are established lunar links to sleep patterns, hormonal patterns, neurological patterns, reproductive patterns. Human consciousness itself, it seems, arose in direct alignment with and connection to the rhythms of the moon. And I'm repeating this next part over and over in a very lunar way, spiraling back to it because it's the key here. It's not just that the moon affects us, that it affects life. It's not just that the moon is this faraway object exerting some external influence on life, which evolved totally separate from the moon. It's that the basic somatic mechanisms of the human being, including human, neural, hormonal, brainwave consciousness, are lunar. So let's return to that study that showed that nucleic acids arose in the tides and that the most basic life forms that operate say, through the opening and closing of valves, 
evolve these valves in tidal pools in alignment to the ebb and flow of the moon. This basic valve structure, right, this mechanism of pulsing between open and closed, went on to be the very foundation of how glands and organs work in bodies. Why do we need a heart that pumps? Why do we need valves that open and close? Why do we need the ebb and flow of hormones? Why is cellular respiration in which cells pulse between empty and full? Why is this the foundation of life? This is a lunar structure. It is a tidal structure. It is the structure of bodies in relation to the moon. This is how life structures itself in relation to the moon. So let us build a liquid ladder, a nucleic ladder, a spiraling double helix, one could say, to the moon. The ladder to the moon, we could even say, is made of DNA. The ladder to the moon is life itself. Life is fluid. There is no life without fluid, without water. Life pulses. Everything alive lives through the dynamic action of pulsing. Why does life pulse? Life pulses because it is tidal. Why is life tidal? Because of the moon. The moon. The moon. All the things that make up human experience, hormonal rhythms, the pulse of neurological firing, circulation through the opening and closing of valves, these are all lunar alignments. It's so clear and so simple that it's impossible to conclude anything else. Somatic consciousness evolved in direct connection to the moon. Or if you want to put it in an even more direct way, where does your consciousness come from? Your consciousness comes from the moon. Let's go back to our list of lunar words from that Indo-European root, men. Meter, measure, memory, moon, mind. Mind. Meter, measure, memory, moon, mind. The mind is lunar. Consciousness is lunar. In fact, it's difficult to think of an aspect of consciousness that is not also an aspect of the moon. What do I mean? I mean, the moon pulses. Consciousness pulses. The moon pulses between empty and full. The thoughts and feelings of consciousness, which transmit in a fluid matrix, which are themselves essentially fluid, pulse between empty and full. You've felt it, you've pulsed between a spacious focus that is free from thought to a mind brimming with thought. The consciousness waxes and wanes. It has tides. This isn't a metaphor. Feel into the tides of your day. There are tides to how your mind and body functions. Hormonal tides, neurological tides, cerebrospinal tides. Where do these tides come from? They were built evolutionarily around the moon. The moon creates ebb and flow. Consciousness ebbs and flows. The moon reflects. Consciousness reflects, right? Consciousness is a reflective process. To recognize oneself as a being, an aware being, is a reflective process. The moon illuminates through reflection. Consciousness illuminates through reflection. The moon self-organizes in regular repetitive cycles. Consciousness self-organizes in regular repetitive cycles. 
the moon transforms through repetitive cycles in which it always returns over time to the same place, but it's not quite the same. Consciousness does this too, it's how we transform. Remember the link between the moon and verse, the same spiral, a regular rhythm of repetition that always returns but returns slightly different each time? That's the transformative power of reflective consciousness over time. How do we transform? We repeat over time and reflect. Each time we reflect, the spiral of the cycle shifts a little bit. That's consciousness. That's the moon. And there's something else, too. Another way that consciousness and the moon are linked. Something more mysterious. How does the moon turn in its orbit? It turns in the most fascinating of ways. Quote, because the moon spins on its own axis in the identical time it takes to orbit the Earth, its lighted near side is always turned earthward, just as its perpetually dark far side is always turned away. Everyone is a moon, wrote Mark Twain, and has a dark side which he never shows to anybody. So the moon has a visible side that pulses between empty and full, and a hidden side that is never seen just like consciousness. Consciousness has a visible side that pulses between empty and full, and has a hidden side, what is sometimes called the subconscious, the dark side of the moon, that is never seen. The deeper we go, the more we see the inextricable link between consciousness and the moon. Consciousness and the moon. All those Zen poems linking the moon and consciousness, all those tantric texts speaking about the lunar goddess of consciousness, it's not about consciousness is like the moon. It's something much more direct. Consciousness comes from the moon itself. So Zen master Dogen's moon in a dewdrop becomes something much less metaphorical and something much more somatically present. Moon in a dewdrop, quote, Dogen uses the image of a dewdrop reflecting moonlight to describe the state of meditation. He suggests that just as the entire moon is reflected in a dewdrop, a complete awakening of truth can be experienced by the individual human being. You know, and that's a, a beautiful interpretation, but there's something going on that's much more somatically present than this. Who are the dewdrops? We're the dewdrops, we're made of water, and the moon is consciousness reflecting from one spherical source through trillions of individual droplet bodies. Moon in a dewdrop. Moon in a dewdrop. Imagine one source, one moon, responsible for all of these individual lives, individual pulsings, individual musings. One single solitary stone in space that provokes oceans to pulse and that pulse to form bodies, and those bodies to form eyes to stare back at the moon, and throats to sing metered verse back to the moon, and consciousness to perceive the moon like a shining orb in the spaciousness of the skull. What power that simple stone in space wields. And this brings us, of course, to what scientists call the hard problem of consciousness. The hard problem of consciousness, or, quote, how does experience arise out of non-sentient matter? What is the point at which elements become aware of themselves? 
Where is the great leap between the non-alive and the alive, the non-aware and the aware? And it's called a hard problem because they can't find that point, that exact place. In the case of the moon, we could ask perhaps, how could a simple inert mineral sphere, if that's how we see it, how could a round stone in space generate life, bodies, thoughts, breath, feelings? How could it result in bodies of self-aware water ambulating and thinking and doing and crying and invoking and living and dying? How could it do this? I mean, could it really be that animate consciousness has as its source something inert at the center? Something that causes life to be simply by being in the right place at the right time to pull on tides and reflect light? It makes us rethink a lot about consciousness, doesn't it? And more to the point, as my wife brought up when we spoke about this part the other day, it makes us rethink a lot about stones. The power of a stone in its right place. The power of a center point in relation. So, from the scientific view, the moon provokes all this movement entirely through where it is positioned. It is positioned in a place to pull on the waters and to reflect light. So you could say it's a center point within a great field of animacy, which might be exactly what we are too, but you can't just focus on the point and ignore the field, which might be why the hard problem of consciousness exists at all. Because we keep trying to isolate individual things and look at them as conscious or not conscious. When, in fact, just like an aboriginal dot painting, things exist as relational points within a larger animate field. You feel what I'm speaking of? You feel the moonlight saturating this conversation? An animate field that beholds itself in a trillion shifting ways across time and space. And so trying to ascribe life or consciousness to one thing removed from its relationality to all other things across time and space is not a reflection of how things actually work in systems. When we see it relationally, the moon, of course, is a god and a goddess exerting its power as the source of animacy across time and space. And this relational model has implications for community, for family dynamics, for ritual structures. What is it to be positioned in a place of resonance, reflection, and harmonic relationality? Mark my words here, let's check back in 20 years. The hard problem of consciousness will eventually be addressed and understood through resonance, reflection, and relationality. Not, is this neuron responsible for consciousness? Is this brainwave responsible for consciousness? But how does this relationship result in co-being? We may find that consciousness is not a single pinpointable thing, but a triangulation, as the goddess texts tell us. A triangulation between the sun, the moon, and the water. Between the sun, the moon, and us. This I learned from the moon that holy stone, that holy light, that holy space, that holy relationality, that holy God, that holy goddess. This I learned from the moon.
This relationality, of course, is why if you want to understand the moon, feel the moon, experience the moon, build a ladder to the moon, you do it here on Earth. All the power of the moon is here on Earth, in bodies. Blasting a little tin can into space and planting a flag on a rock tells you almost nothing about the moon, only about human lunacy. For what matters is the moon's positioning in relation, how the moon is in relation to everything around it. Like when scientists finally get to the center of consciousness, the center of the confluence of brain waves or of neural firing mechanisms, what are they going to find? It's empty. There's no definable point at which the matter, the water, the tissue is conscious. It's a field of consciousness, empty like Isa's bucket. You know, Isa, the haiku poet who said, the bottom fell out. No water in the bucket. No moon in the water. Infinite layers of relationality, of reflectivity, each thing reflecting the other thing with nothing isolatable or reducible anywhere to be found. Isolate the thing and lose knowledge of the thing. Understand the thing in relationality and it is revealed. So come to know consciousness and the moon through poetry. Come to know consciousness and the moon through ritual. Come to know consciousness and the moon through repetitive invocation. Come to know consciousness and the moon through trance. There was a mortal man once who knew the moon. There was a mortal man who knew the moon. Endymion, his name was. Beautiful Endymion, a shepherd who gazed at the night skies. The first astronomer, some say, the first charter of the moon's paths across the sky. And because of his beauty and his study of her cyclic rhythms, the moon herself fell in love with Endymion. Selene, the moon goddess, fell in love with Endymion. She wanted to join with him forever, so she enchanted him into an eternal sleep. And in that state of trance, she came and went as she pleased, joined with him as she wished, retreated away, returned, waxed, and waned. To know the pulse of the moon, to conjoin with the pulse of nirvikalpa, pristine, thoughtless consciousness, one must find her in that place of eternity, eternal sleep of trance. Selene, the moon goddess, in the upper vaults of the skull. For in that place, all this theoretical and factual stuff about the moon as consciousness disappears. And what comes then is the spontaneous beholding of what has been called the moonlight of consciousness. Spontaneous beholding of the moonlight of consciousness full absorption into the moon.
like a finger pointing at the moon, Bruce Lee once said. Concentrate on the finger and lose all the heavenly glory. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. Or we could call it this, seeing the moon with wolf eyes. Does the wolf in mid-howl consider itself separate from the moon? Are the moon and the wolf two beings? Or is the bright sphere at the center and the wolf singing back to it one co-being? One continuous expression of the source and the tides. One continuous expression of the tide of reflective vibration. Feel that through its presence, its luminous reflection, the moon initiates a pulsing tide that returns to it as all the wolves of the world singing back. All the wolves of the world singing back, singing back, singing back to the moon. All the wolves of the world singing back to the moon. The goddess, says the Nityasodashi Karnava, showers the three worlds with the moonlike light of her syllables. Why are her syllables moonlike? Why is sound moonlike? Speech song is reflected vibration. It is resonance. The reflected vibration of moonlight is a song heard by the wolf and sung back in resonance. Moonlight is resonance because it is a reverberation of sunlight. So the wolf resonates with resonant moonlight and shapes its very body around the moon, tipping its mouth up and making its mouth moon-shaped. Have you noticed this? That the wolf invokes the round moon through making its mouth round. And we do this too. Is it a coincidence that the word we have for moon has that ooh sound, that round mouth sound in the middle of it? Moon. Portuguese. The mouth when invoking the moon is moon-shaped. The moon is mouth-shaped. The lunar goddesses, the Nityas, say the tantric texts, are the vowels. The journey of the lunar fortnight is a progression of all the vowels of the alphabet, which is a progression through all the phases of resonant vibration in creation. The moon-like light of her syllables, the resonant reflective language of vibration. The song of the moon, the call of the wolf. Perhaps you've noticed that during the phases of the moon, the moon is like a mouth shaped to make each of the vowel sounds. From the E of the crescent moon, the smile of the crescent moon, the E of the crescent moon, to the O and Oo of the full moon, the moon is sounding out, showering the world with the reflective sonorous building blocks of creation. Have you noticed this?
For the moon in this vision is the mother goddess herself, who is the pulse of consciousness, who is rapturous focus realized through the meters, rhythms, rituals, remembrances, songs, vowels, through the harnessing of pulses and liquid tides, all of which, too, are lunar. So let us build a ladder to the moon, a ladder made of the transparent moonlight of consciousness. For consciousness is a ladder to the moon. Consciousness is a ladder made of gravity and water and moonbeams. Consciousness is a ladder made of gravity and water and moonbeams. Consciousness is a metered poetic ladder of remembering that leads us to the moon. Consciousness, resonance, and moonlight. Are they three different things? And when we climb at last the ladder rungs of moonlight in the vast clear expanse of skull space, what do we find? We find the goddess herself, Kundalini Kubjika, described directly as the pulsing moon of consciousness. In one story, the goddess, still in the unmanifest state, yet longing for union with her divine lover, is told she must go through the great pilgrimage of creation first in order to unite with him. The longing she feels must express through the world and all its creatures and places and specificities in order to ultimately be absorbed back into union. So where does she go to perform her ritual of meditative absorption and spark the process of creation? She travels to the mountain of the moon. She travels to the mountain of the moon, white, silver, eerie, stark, with fragrant lunar gardens and a vast, smooth, central stone. Kundalini, the texts say, resides on the island of the moon in the form of a lunar stone in the center of the island. She lives on the mountain of the moon, which is identified with Meru, the mountain at the center of the world. Her abode is the city of the moon, and her house is the house of the moon, where perfected yogis reside. She goes there and performs her great meditation. And as she does so, the entire universe is absorbed into her, into one lunar drop, one lunar stone. The whole universe absorbed into the moon, the moon, the moon, the moon. one point of focus in the vastness of conscious space. The moon, the moon, the moon. And then she emerges, she bursts out of that single point as the full expression of the lunar energies, showering the world with the moon-like light of her syllables, infusing the void with life, bending and birthing, sending lunar sap running through the veins of the trees and lunar vowels erupting from the mouths of wolves and tides of tears spilling from the eyes of those who long for her. The moon, the moon, the moon. Creation stirs, the cranial vault floods with lunar nectar. The consciousness of the practitioner, the tantras say, becomes a flooded island. So when Mary Rufel wrote that line in her essay that says lyric poetry begins with a woman on an island gazing at the moon, little did she know that she was invoking the story of Kundalini, the goddess of consciousness herself. For in this vision, all of creation, all vibrational manifestation, including the syllabic, poetic, resonant building blocks of creation itself, come from her, from consciousness, absorbed in the single-pointed trance rapture of the moon. And thus, the lyric poetry of creation, the lyric poetry of life, the bends and sways, the pulses of life, the tides of life, all of these are lunar. All of these flood from the island of the moon. 
Let us bask in the moonlight. Let us steep in the moonlight. That holy place of reflected resonance. So the Kumari Kakandaha invokes the moon. I praise the goddess who is called the full moon, her form spherical like the bud of the Kadamba tree and who is the culmination of the lunar fortnight. I praise the new moon, the essential nature of all the principles. I praise the goddess of emanation, Vama, who is the full moon, the abode of nectar, the emitter of nectar. I praise the nameless goddess of the new moon. I praise the full moon as Kundalini, whose limbs are beings who govern the syllables. I praise the goddess of the new moon, whose form emerges as moonlight. I praise the unbroken circle of the full moon, round and pure, who removes the ties that bind us and that is the foundation of every living being. The foundation of every living being. So let us build a ladder to the moon. And sometimes that's as simple as starting to pay attention to the rhythms and the tides so that we might find a life of good measure and good meter let us build a ladder made of song and meter a ladder made of the sap of life a ladder made of the sounding footsteps of the repetitive dance a ladder made of hymns a ladder made of plants a ladder made of memory a ladder made of harnessed tides a ladder made of pulsing valves and circulating systems a ladder made of bodies a ladder made of feeling, a ladder made of life, a ladder made of consciousness, the reverberant power, the moonlike light of consciousness. For consciousness, consciousness, consciousness is a liquid tide that pulses and hums and reflects and sings, and whose source has always been and forever will be the moon. The moon, the moon. <laughs>
first of all, special thanks to some amazing musicians who contributed to this episode. Robbie Rothschild, an old childhood friend of mine, played the kora, the West African instrument, which is just such a profoundly beautiful, resonant instrument, thanks to Robbie. And you can check out Robbie's music at RobbieRothschild.com. That's R-O-B-B-Y-R-O-T-H-S-C hild.com. He's got some wonderful stuff. Special thanks to Sidibe for providing the transcendently beautiful vocals in this episode. And Sidibe, you can find her music on Spotify. It's S-I-D-I-B-E. Charlotte Malin, who's been playing viola in some of the episodes, contributed to this one as well. And Charlotte's music can be found at resonanthearthealing.com. Resonanthearthealing.com. And as always, this episode contains reference to many books, poems, works of art, movies, songs, etc. These include Moon in a Dewdrop by A. H. Dogen, The Myth of Eternal Return by Mircea Eliade, The Masks of God series by Joseph Campbell, the poem Moonrise by Gerard Manley Hopkins, the haiku of Mazuda Masahide and Issa, the book The Lunar Gospel by Cal Garrison, the painting Ladder to the Moon by Georgia O'Keeffe, The Still Dark Side of the Moon, Molecular Mechanisms of Lunar Controlled Rhythms and Clocks, a scientific study by Gabrielle Andrietta and Kristen Tesmar-Rabel in the Journal of Molecular Biology, Without the Moon, Would There Be Life on Earth, an article in Scientific American by Bruce Dormany on April 21st, 2009, the songs Blue Moon, Pink Moon, and Yellow Moon by Elvis Presley, Nick Drake, and the Neville Brothers, respectively, the song That's Amore by Dean Martin, the song Eclipse off the album Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, the song Voice of the Moon by Anushka Shankar, Poetry in the Moon, an essay by Mary Rufel, the book The Yoga of the Planets by Andrew Foss, the Egyptian Myths by Gary J. Shaw, the Kumarika Kandaha, the section of the Montana Bhairava Tantra concerning the Virgin Goddess, translated with commentary by Mark Diskowski, the Alchemical Body by David Gordon White, The Goddess Within and Beyond the Three Cities by Jeffrey Lidke, To the Moon, an anthology of lunar poems, The Homeric Hymn to Selene, The Poem The Highwayman by Alfred Noyes, The Book The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein, Udbata's Writings on the Rasavada, The Book The Dawning Moon of the Mind by Susan Brind Morrow, The Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven, The Composition Claire de Lune by Claude Debussy, The Moon is Distant from the Sea, the poem by Emily Dickinson, and, of course, the film... Enter the Dragon, starring Bruce Lee, who first taught me about real emotional content. Lazar, is the moon up? Yeah. Is the moon up? Do you see the moon? Yeah. Is it full? No. Not full. No. Is it getting bigger? No. Is it getting smaller? Yeah. Yeah, it's getting smaller. You're right. the moon. What's that? What is it? There's a pink front moon. There's something in front of the moon. What is it? Uh, rainbow. You see a little rainbow around the moon? Yeah. Yeah, I see that little rainbow around the moon too. You see it? I see it. I got another booger. <laughs> you got another booger? Yeah. yeah. Don't try to put that in my mouth, dude. I wait. My booger on the moon. You're going to wipe your booger on the moon? Yeah. <laughs> 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 make moon 
It'll make the moon happy to have your booger wiped on it? Yeah. <laughs> the moon, the moon, the moon, the moon.